Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. It's good to be back with you all. I appreciate Steve's faithful ministry to you all in my absence, your opportunity to hear him and have him bring his heart and the word the Lord led him to to you. And I pray that I thank you for your prayers and pray you'll continue to pray for me as I continue my recovery. I'm not 100% in my strength, but um, glad to be back. Glad to be back. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll begin. Father, we do so long. I, I pray that it's the longing of our hearts that we, we want to know Christ fully, truly, deeply in the inner man. Our great longing is not to be better people, not to be religious people, not to be moral people, not even to be happy, contented people in the way that the, the world understands that but to be Christified people, to be people who are truly conformed to the likeness of Christ. For he is the true man. He is the truth of your human creature. He is the one in whom we see your design and your realization of your purposes for your human creature that we as image bearers would be image children and that we would execute your loving, wise, benevolent, and good rule over the works of your hands. That all things would find their ultimate destiny, their fullness, their significance, their meaning. In Jesus our Lord. And as all things, including our own lives, are summed up in him in that great day and then forever, as Paul said, our God will be all in all. I pray that you would give us that vision, that you would give us that as the lens through which we think about what it is to be Christians, what it is to walk in obedience, what it is to be faithful what it is to live godly lives, what it is to testify to the world around us that Christ is Lord, what it is to be people informed and governed by your scriptures. And so, Father, attend to this time as we continue our worship. I pray that you would strengthen me, that you would give me clarity of thought, that you would bind uh, the hearts and the minds of, of all of your saints, all of those who are gathered today, that you would gather us up by your spirit, focus us, direct us, encourage us, and exhort us. May it be the longing of our heart, as those Greeks said that day before Jesus was offered, we would see Jesus. I pray that's our burden today, and I pray that you would help me in that endeavor. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, we return to Hebrews, and I I regret that it's been kind of sporadic Um, between the holidays and me being gone. We've kind of been in, out, in, out, in, out, and I hope that... um, that you will work at trying to keep this all together in your heads. And if that means going back and reviewing, going back and listening to past messages, uh, I I pray that you will do that. 
because it's very important that we understand what the writer is getting at here, particularly as he moves from this issue of Jesus' priesthood into this thing of the new covenant. It's certainly one of the lightning rods in uh, different theological systems, different theological, uh, uh, historical, traditional ways of thinking about uh, the scriptures, thinking about the salvation history, thinking about what's come in Jesus. And, and I really want us to labor to work on the glasses that we're wearing to, to truly hold these things together. Last time when we were together, we talked about the context. I, I've titled this section, Superior Priest, Superior Covenant. And the last time uh, I talked about the context of Jeremiah's prophecy from uh, Jeremiah 31, because that's the text that the writer of Hebrews cites from. And, and I made this point to you that, that Jesus' superior priesthood implies a superior covenant. He's made that argument through chapter 7 in terms of um, the fact that the uh, covenant is based in the priesthood. And therefore, the change of priesthood, which he's been arguing, a change of priesthood from the Levitical order to this priesthood held by the one man, Jesus the Messiah, the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, that change to a different priesthood brings with it a change of covenant as well. And so all of the time that he's given to developing the distinctions, the superiority of this Melchizedekian priesthood has been leading towards this new covenant and its superiority. And I said to you last time that the ways in which that priesthood is superior gives us insight. It helps us to understand the ways in which this covenant is superior. And that's a huge point of debate and has been for centuries and centuries. Is this a continuation of a former covenant? Is it a totally discontinuous covenant? How do we understand this thing of the new covenant and particularly its relationship to Israel's own covenant relationship with God? And what we saw concerning this priesthood is that it is unique, Jesus' priesthood is unique in relation to the Levitical priesthood in that it embodies the substance of God's all-encompassing purpose for his creation. In Jesus' priesthood, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek the king-priest, we see this embodying of priesthood in the Messiah in such a way that it testifies to God's overarching, all-encompassing purpose for his creation that has its focal point in man, created to be priest-king. Mediating the life and the presence and the goodness and the love of God to the world, gathering up the world's praises back to God. Exercising God's wise, loving lordship over his world. That's the superiority of that priesthood. That's the effectuality of that priesthood and where it's ultimately going. And again, that helps us to think about how this covenant associated with that priesthood is itself superior. This new covenant is the goal that the writer had in mind in dealing with Jesus' priesthood and arguing concerning it. And again, as I said last time, for that reason, it's critical that we understand this covenant, especially as it stands in relation to this priesthood. The two are inseparable. Any discussion about the new covenant can't be really carried out except in the context of this priesthood upon which it's based. And so again, how we understand the new covenant necessarily impacts, perhaps even drives the way we understand Christ's work and vice versa. You can't separate the two. And too often we do. We don't think about the new covenant. We don't think about Christ's work or um, yeah, the work of Christ, particularly in terms of his cross and, and satisfaction of sin and all those ideas. We don't think of them in terms of these priestly ideas that the writer's been fleshing out for us.
So again, the writer cited from Jeremiah's prophecy, and last time we looked at the context of that, both in terms of of the historical setting, where we were in the salvation history, the flowing out of God's purposes for the world, and even the prophetic context, where that particular passage sits within uh, the surrounding context of Jeremiah. 30 and 31 of Jeremiah, both uh, Those two chapters are one extended prophecy of which this section, these few verses of Jeremiah 31, are a part. And then lastly, we also looked at the importance, the effect of theological premises on our understanding, the way that we come to Jeremiah 31 and this promise of a new covenant and what we think it even is looking to and what we, how we think that is actually fulfilled is driven by the glasses that we're wearing. Sometimes those glasses are invisible to us, but nonetheless, we're all looking through a set of lenses. And there are premises that are brought to bear within dispensationalism, within covenant theology, within various traditions, that in a certain sense, we have to understand those premises and deal with them uh, in order to really strip ourselves back from those premises and, and deal with the text in its own right. Let me read then with you uh, chapter 8 of Hebrews. That's what we're drawing from. And we'll be looking at again today specifically the content of Jeremiah's prophecy. So we're going to go back to Jeremiah, but I want to read Hebrews chapter 8 because that's where uh, he's citing that particular prophecy. Again, he tells us what his point is with respect to all of his discussion of the priesthood and Jesus' priesthood according to a new order. He says, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest, this one that I've been telling you about, this this thing I've been uh, opening up and unfolding for you. One who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, That is the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, and he's obviously talking about Jesus as this high priest, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. He's of the wrong tribe. Those who serve what is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly realities, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For the Lord said, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he, Jesus, this high priest, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would, not, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. But finding fault with them, the children of the covenant, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect, I will enact, bring forth a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. He's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek rendering of this passage from Jeremiah. Uh, The Hebrew actually says, and uh, they did not continue in my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So if you see a distinction, that's the reason why. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh, the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, technically my law, not plural. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And they shall not teach every, everyone his fellow citizens and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, know Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them, the least significant to the most important of them. And I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, and whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. 
So again, uh, this particular citation from Jeremiah 31 is in the midst of a larger prophetic context. And Jeremiah is, is given this understanding right at the point of Judah's impending captivity. The house of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, have long since been divided. Almost a century and a half earlier, the northern 10 tribes, which became Israel with their capital at Samaria, uh, they have been conquered, led into captivity by the Assyrians. And now, like I said, more than a century later, the same fate is about to befall Judah, consisting of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. That's the remnant of David's kingdom with the capital in Jerusalem. And God has cut off the house of David, the dynasty of David. God is taking away David's kingdom. The seat of his kingdom, Jerusalem, is to be destroyed. The temple is to be destroyed. Everything associated with God's covenant relationship with Israel and and this kingdom uh, that was manifested in the Israelite theocracy, everything associated with that is going away. And yet behind that and and running along over the top of it is the enduring promise of God to Abraham, the enduring promise of God to David, that he would seat one of his sons on his throne, and that in the son of David he would restore his house and his throne and his kingdom. And this promise of a new covenant is situated in that context of promise. The very next prophecy, chapter 32, has Jeremiah imprisoned in the house of the king in Jerusalem, and he's told to buy a piece to, to buy a piece of property that belongs to his family, his wider family. And it's a sign that says, yes, this is all going away. Yes, this is all going to be destroyed. Yes, Babylon even now is laying siege. But this isn't to be the end of the story. Buy this piece of property in the assurance that one day the land will again be inhabited. It will one day be restored. Why would you buy a piece of property if all of this is going to be taken away and destroyed and made part of an empire and never to be recovered? So that's the setting in which this takes place. And the first thing I want to consider then is the timing of this. What is he talking about? Days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Our first question should be, when are those days? What is he talking about? And different traditions and different theological systems give different answers to that question. And it's not my intent today to discuss all of those different answers and where they come from. But that's the first question that arises. What is he talking about? When this, is this to happen? Is this to happen immediately preceding the millennial kingdom, supposedly because it's a covenant with Israel and Judah? What is he talking about? Well, in context, these days, these coming days, refer to the time of renewal, The time of renewal when Abraham's offspring will be liberated, will be healed, will be cleansed, will be forgiven, will be reconciled to their God and to one another. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 30, and I'm not going to go through all of these texts, we'll be looking at some of them, but you need to read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 in the context of the larger setting and even the larger prophecy. These days that are coming days are days when God is going to heal the rift between Israel and Judah. He's going to restore the fractured, fragmented, alienated Abrahamic household. And in reconciling them together, it's going to be in the context of God reconciling Abraham's offspring to himself. Yahweh was going to return to Zion. Remember, he had departed. He left the temple. You see it in Ezekiel. He'd left it desolate. But he promised that one day the glory will again return. 
The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. But who can stand the day of his coming? It will be like a refiner's fire. Israel hoped in that day, and yet it was going to also bring judgment and calamity. But it's promising the day when Yahweh would return to Zion, when he would renew the covenant relationship with Abraham's offspring, when he would establish his everlasting kingdom through his messianic servant king. If you look at just the beginning of chapter 30 of of Jeremiah, this is This is the beginning of this prophecy of which the citation of a new covenant is part. The word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land I gave to their forefathers. They shall possess it. These are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. And then as he goes down through here, but pick it up in verse 8. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will break his yoke from off their neck. The yoke of the oppressor, the yoke of the subjugating power. I will tear off their bonds. Strangers shall no longer make them slaves. But they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I shall raise up for them. A day of restoration centered in the coming of the Davidic seed, the messianic servant king. You see the same thing as you you work through chapter 31, leading up uh, to the verse 31 passage. In 31, if you pick it up at verse 27, Behold, days are coming declares Yahweh, when I will sow the house of Israel, the house of Judah, with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. It's to be made desolate, the haunt of jackals. But I did not create to be empty, tohu wavohu, but to be inhabited, to be ordered and filled, taking us back to the creation, right? God intended his creation to be ordered and inhabited. It will come about that as I have watched over them to pluck up, break down, overthrow, and destroy to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares Yahweh. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. And this will tie into this thing of they will all know me. In other words, the the sin of the leaders will not bring calamity on the nation the way that it was for Israel. Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then if you go over to 33, and this is probably more familiar to you, but again, the same general setting. This is a prophecy that comes to Jeremiah. He's in the house of the king. The Babylonians are laying siege to the city. 33.14, behold, days are coming. Do you see the repeated refrain? Days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill this good word which I've spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which Jerusalem shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. And so these coming days refer to the days when God will restore the desolate habitations. When he will restore the household of Israel, the the Abrahamic seed. When Yahweh will liberate and gather and purge and forgive. And he himself will again come and dwell in the midst of his people. Take his place in his sanctuary. Again, centered in this messianic son of David who will come and accomplish this work. Now, all the details aren't filled in, but that's the setting in which we need to understand what are these days he's talking about. 
These days are the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. We think of that as the end times, you know, whatever tribulation. The day of Yahweh has the twin ideas of judgment and healing and restoration. Yahweh will arise. The day of Yahweh is when he comes to judge the world in righteousness and to put all things right. We think of judgment in a negative way, but you read in the Psalms that it's something that the creation celebrates. The Lord is coming to judge the world. He's going to put it right. Therefore rejoice, O creation. The Lord is coming. He will deal with all of this. And that's this idea of the day of the Lord in these coming days when Yahweh will arise. That's the theme that binds together all of God's prophets, whether they were pre-exile, whether they prophesied during the exile of the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, whether they prophesied after when the Jews were starting to come back and were rebuilding the temple and then the city. This is the key theme. It's not the end. Yahweh will yet arise. And as I've said so many times, even after they came back to Jerusalem, that didn't end the exile. Yes, they rebuilt the temple. Yes, they rebuilt the city. But in distress, in times of conflict and war, no son of David on the throne, no restoration of the kingdom, and most importantly, no Yahweh in his sanctuary. We're going to see that next time. The Ark of the Covenant never came back. There was not an Ark of the Covenant in the Second Temple. And if there wasn't an Ark of the Covenant, that bore absolute witness to the fact that Yahweh had not returned because at least in that time, the way in which he was present in his temple was in the Shekinah, the Shekinah, the glory cloud that was over the wings of the cherubim over the ark in the Holy of Holies. Yahweh had not returned. Israel continued in exile. That would not end until God dealt with the covenant violation that had driven all of this away to begin with. That's why the promise of this is bound up in this idea of forgiveness, cleansing, reconciliation. It's not about where Jewish people were living geographically. Yes, they might have been back in Jerusalem. They might have even been looking at this rebuilt temple. And yet, they hadn't, their exile hadn't ended. Yahweh had not dealt with Israel's covenant violation. The covenant needed to be renewed. That's what this is all about. Well, why then does he say, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah? And then he says, this will be the covenant that I make with Israel after those days. And maybe you haven't noticed that, and I don't want to belabor this, but people have said, well, what's the deal here? How can it be days are coming when I will do this, but then after those days I will do this? And some have said, well, it's actually two new covenants, one with Israel and Judah in these days, and then after those days, a different covenant just with Israel, because only Israel's mentioned the second time. Well, actually, the point is very, very simple, is that after those days when God makes this covenant refers to what? The days of the former covenant, the days of the Sinai covenant. Look again at the way this is fleshed out. Days are coming when I will make a new covenant, not like the one I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. That's the Sinai covenant. That's the covenant made with the house of Israel by which those Abrahamic promises and election and mission were ratified to the nation of Israel, the corporate Abrahamic people. Not like that covenant, For what? They broke that covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the days of that covenant, that former covenant, the days of rebellion, the days of covenant violation, the days in which they broke my covenant, though I was faithful to them. That's what he's saying here. So the context is talking about one covenant, one new covenant. But the during these days and after these days has that sort of a referent. And the reason why this, 
the, in the second instance, he says only Israel and not Israel and Judah is because there is to be a bringing together of Israel and, and Judah. And I'm not going to read this, but again, if you read all of 30, 31, 32, 33, and not just there, but if you just take that context, the promise of God is to reunite, reconstitute the houses of, of Israel and Judah, the Abrahamic people in connection with the coming messianic servant. In other words, make Israel become Israel. So Israel and Judah becomes then after those days, Israel again as God intends. In those days, God was going to renew the covenant relationship through a sovereign work of purging, forgiveness, and reconciliation. But in order that Israel would at last fulfill its covenant election as son, servant, disciple, and witness. Those were all titles that defined Israel. What is Israel? Son, servant, disciple, witness. So what are then the distinctives of this new covenant? What are the things that he says? Well, again, the first thing, the referent, who, what's the referent of the covenant? Well, the two houses of Israel. And this is the reason that dispensationalism has tended to say this is first and foremost an Israelite covenant. And I, we discussed all this before. Some say really the new covenant has nothing to do with the church except in an indirect way. It's an Israelite covenant, and it pertains to Israel in relation to God in the millennial kingdom. Because it says, with Israel and Judah. But in fact, for this new covenant to be identified in that way is absolutely necessary and crucially important. Why? Because of the scheme that God had put in place, the pattern, the arrangement of the salvation history which is what? To the Jew first, then to the Greek. In you, Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's own covenant arrangement was such that the restoration of Israel and Judah is the foundation for the gathering in of the nations. It is first and foremost a restoring of the Abrahamic household that it would fulfill its own election and calling on behalf of the world. It's by identifying it, I guess here's the point, by identifying this as a covenant with Israel and Judah, that underscores the universal pertinence of that covenant. Because it's precisely in it being a covenant with Israel and Judah that it is a universal covenant. It's the way in which God's purpose for his creation was bound up in Israel and specifically in Israel being Israel. That's important to the context of all of these things. And so the, the uh, reunification, the reconstitution of the Abrahamic household is foundational to the work of this covenant. Not just in the human level, but at the creational level. And that helps us to understand, secondly, then, why there is even a need for this covenant. Why does God say days are coming when I will make a new covenant? And the writers already said this was something that was necessary, finding fault with them. If the first one had been sufficient, there would not have been need of another. What is that need? Well, again, if we say, what is God's purpose And I've said this so many times, but it's critically important. We in our culture have tended to think that the purpose of God in relation to the Messiah and the Messianic work is that a bunch of individual people can get saved and go to heaven. That's not the purpose of God in this work. Yes, human beings get saved, not to go off to heaven, but to become the constituents of a new human race to, as I said, be priests and kings ruling over the works of his hands. We saw this in the Sunday school hour. We think of the goal as going off to heaven when God's goal is heaven and earth coming together. Right? Heaven coming to earth, as it were. 
the purpose of God, the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth in the Messiah, viewed in terms of Israel's failure because that purpose of God by his own determination was bound up in Israel. Therefore, Israel's failure is not just about these Jewish people couldn't get it right. They couldn't keep God's laws and commandments. He told them, do this, do that, do the other thing, and they didn't do it. Oh, how could they be so stupid? Why would they not obey him? Gratefully, we can obey him. We have the spirit, but they couldn't get it right. That's not the point. This work of God that that takes the whole creation into its grasp was conduited through, was dependent on Israel and its election, the Abrahamic people. Therefore, Israel's failure as covenant son underscores both the need of covenant renewal, a renewing of God's relationship with his creation, and also the form that that renewal would have to take. In other words, it can't just be a reinstatement of the covenant relationship that Israel had before the exiles. It can't just be a recommitment on Israel's part, okay, we'll do better this time. We've learned our lesson. We'll we'll now keep your law. We didn't last time, we will this time. God says, okay, I'm going to bring all this back just the way that it was before. Reinstatement and recommitment to the former covenant would not avail. It would not avail to this purpose of God's election of Israel and covenant with Israel. From Sinai forward, Israel had shown itself utterly incapable, not of keeping laws and commandments, but of fulfilling its election as son, servant, disciple, witness. Israel could not fulfill its covenant identity and calling. The relationship, because all of this depended on Israel being Israel, the relationship that God had with Israel had to be completely reordered and on a new foundation in order that his purposes for the whole creation would be realized. And if you look back in chapter 30, you know what God says of of them, just a couple of verses, thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable. Your injury is serious, it's fatal. There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore. No recovery for you. That's what God says. No recovery for you. But then he goes on and says, I will heal you. I will heal you. So the need for the covenant was precisely that Israel needed to, Israel needed to be reconciled and restored to God in order for his purposes, not just for human beings, but for the whole creation to go forth. And to be fully realized. So the referent of the covenant, the reason for that, the need of a covenant renewal, a new covenant. And then the last thing is just, I want to talk a little bit about the features of this covenant. And and the first thing is that what God is pledging in this covenant renewal is that finally he will have a people for himself. You will be my people and I will be your God. And that should ring in our ears as Abrahamic language. That was the heart of the promise that God made to Abraham, the heart of the covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 17. When he gave him him the the, uh, uh, ritual of circumcision, the sign of the covenant. And he said, I will be the God of you and your descendants and they will be my people. And because it's the heart of, again, this purpose of God for the world bound up in Abraham, you keep seeing it be reiterated throughout the prophets. One day, this reality would come to pass. God will be the God of a people, and a people will be his people. And the obvious implication is Israel was not his people. God would have a people for himself. This covenant would see to it that he would have a people for himself. This is the meaning of that. The being, the creature that God created as his image bearer would 
finally, at last and forever, be image sunned. The Sinai covenant defined Israel as that. Israel is my son, my monogenes, my only begotten. You alone have I loved. I took you to be my son, to be the mediator of the knowledge of me to all the families of the earth. Israel was defined as that people, as God's image son, but the reality always eluded them, no matter how obedient or committed they were. And you see that in a focal point even with Paul. Paul talked about being blameless under the law of Moses, under Torah, as God gave it to Israel, the covenant definition. And yet he also recognized that in his blamelessness, he was a blasphemer and a grievous offender. This isn't a matter of, did you do the commandments correctly or not correctly? Even when Israel did the commandments correctly, God says, I hate it. I don't want it. I can't abide iniquity in the solemn assembly. Iniquity is the bent of the heart, the crookedness of the heart away from him, regardless of what the behavior looks like. And for, in many instances, Israel was very good at dotting the I's and crossing the T's in their behavior. They were. God's intent in calling Abraham and his seed to be his people, the the calling a people to himself, his design, and this is important, his design was not to rule over a people who were compliant with his directives. See, even when we deal with issues of righteousness and unrighteousness, we think in that way. God wants us to be righteous. What does that look like? It looks like doing what he tells you to do. It looks like dotting I's and crossing T's. And I'm not saying God's fine with us not doing, but but we have to understand how we're defining these ideas. God's intent was not to take to himself a nation concerning whom he would be Lord, a nation defined by being compliant to his lordship, complying with his overlording. His intent in calling a people in Abraham was to produce a family of image children who would share and manifest his life and likeness wisely, lovingly, In other words, a family of image children who would be Yahweh to his creation. They would exercise his loving lordship, and they would also fulfill that priestly function of gathering up and bearing back the praises and the worship of the creation back to God. Man as the intermediary between God and his creation. That's what you see in Genesis, isn't it? Man the image bearer to be image son. Priests and kings to our God, epitomized in the Messiah, the enthroned priest king. So Israel could never satisfy that that intent of God for a people because they too were a part of the problem. They could not be God's people for the sake of the world because they themselves shared the same problem of alienation, estrangement, iniquity, the bent of the heart. Read Ezekiel 20. When you were in Egypt, you didn't know me, but I brought you out. Then you didn't know me out in the wilderness, and you disobeyed me, but for my sake I acted. And then your children, then I brought you in the land. And and it's the whole rehearsing of Israel's history all along the way. You were unfaithful, you broke my covenant, but I was faithful and I acted for the sake of my own intent and my own determination. For all of Israel's assertions, for all of its attempts, they could never be anything but unfaithful to their vocation and their election as son, servant, disciple, and witness. Though Yahweh remained a faithful husband. Well, the implication of that then is that Israel's failure meant the failure of God's purposes for the world. These are important things to understand in how all of this works. And it may may be clear to a lot of us, but I think it's not clear to some of us. Israel's failure was more than just they didn't get it right. Oh, they were, you know, those Jews, they couldn't figure it out. 
The failure of the Abrahamic purpose was the failure of God's purpose for the whole of the creation because he had determined that in Abraham and his seed, all this was to take place. His covenant oath to Abraham meant that somehow Israel had to become Israel indeed. And this is where the prophets start talking about how God is going to embody Israel as son, servant, witness, and disciple in one particular Israelite. This is Isaiah, right? One particular Israelite will be Israel. He will embody the truth of Abraham's election and calling the Abrahamic people, the people of Israel, in a son of Abraham. The one who comes into the world as the Abrahamic seed and also as Yahweh's own embodiment. He was to be true Israel with the goal of reconstituting the Abrahamic household in himself. So God's, the first thing with this covenant is he will have a people. I will be your God, you will be my people. And what defines this people, he says, is that they know God, right? They will all know me from the least significant to the most significant. In Israel, the priests were the educated ones. The priests were the ones who taught the people knowledge. The priests were the ones who helped the Israelite people to know something about this God and his Torah. Most people couldn't even read. The priests taught them through their words, through their rituals, through their priestly ministration, they taught the people to know Yahweh. And God says, when this happens, they'll all know me. All of them. They'll all know me. As true Israel then, and remember, all of this, even in Jeremiah, is centered in this coming messianic figure. He's at the heart of all of this. That's why I say you can't separate any understanding of new covenant from the person and work of Jesus. The two are inextricable. You don't get one right, you don't get the other one right. He, as true Israel, is the faithful servant, son, disciple, and witness. He is the one who is immersed in and governed by Yahweh's Torah, and we have to deal with the idea of law. This isn't a, a, you know, a collection of impersonal, non-historical commandments. Drive 45 in this zone, uh, you, know, you get five cents for a bottle, not six cents. This isn't that kind of law. This is Torah. God's law that he says will be written on the hearts and the minds, it's God's self-disclosure, the disclosure of who he is, the disclosure of his purposes, the disclosure of who the objects of this covenant are. It's that through which knowledge is mediated from God to men. It's instruction in that sense. It's not a collection of commandments, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. Jesus is immersed in and governed by Yahweh's Torah as one who is the embodiment of Torah. And we've seen this before. Even in Matthew 11, Jesus said, the law prophesied until John. The law prophesied. How so? Because in its disclosure, it was depicting and portraying the one who would fulfill it, not as keeping a bunch of rules, but as being the one that it was talking about. He embodies Torah from both sides. He is the God of the covenant. He's Yahweh returned to Zion. He is also the Abrahamic seed. He's both sides of that equation. He embodies in himself what Israel's covenant, Torah, embodied and required from both sides. That's why Isaiah says repeatedly, God makes him the covenant. He is the covenant. Well, how can he be the covenant? Doesn't he bring the covenant? 
Because what the covenant relationship between God and men was all about and how that was Torah, he is himself the substance of that, the truth of that, the realization of that. So here's the point. All who share in him are true covenant children who share his relationship with Torah. People often say, do Christians have to keep law, keep the law? Well, here's how it has to begin to be sorted out. You can't say, yes, no, these laws, not those laws. We're under grace, not under law. Yes, the moral law, but no, not the... None of that gets at any of these answers. Our relationship to Torah, the disclosure of God to man, the disclosure of his person, his purpose, that all has its substance in the Messiah, our relationship to Torah is precisely our relationship to him. You know, we often think about, you know, here's God's law, here's God, here's us, and Jesus comes along by his spirit and helps us so we can now keep God's law. And that's not the way the diagram works. Here's God's Torah. Here's God. Here's the true man, the Messiah. Here's us over here. Our relationship back to God's Torah is in and through the Messiah. We are related to God's Torah as we are related to him. It's So that's why he says they will all know me. I'll write Torah. He doesn't say my laws. It's Torah. I'll write Torah on their hearts and on their minds. Now, he's not talking about the Messiah in these four verses of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. But that's at the center of this. And we have to get that. How is it that they will all know me, that I will write Torah on their hearts and their minds? Because they are taken up in the life of the one who embodies Torah. They are taken up in the life of God himself. The distinguishing and fundamental truth of the enacted new covenant is that it has its essential substance in Jesus, the enthroned priestly image son. There's the relationship between covenant and priesthood. He embodies the covenant reality. He is the covenant of the people. So every person who stands in covenant relation to God, every person who stands in covenantal relation to God in the light of the coming of the Messiah, all whom he designates as his people, all who know him, do so as sharing in the Messiah who is the truth of God, who is the covenant of God, who is the Torah of God. Hence, Israel and Judah were to be reconciled in him. And you see this throughout this wider context. You see this throughout the prophets. This work of reconciliation and in gathering happens in connection with Messiah. Think of Isaiah 11. God raises him up, sets him as a a standard for the people. Israel, Judah, they come to him and all the nations come to him. That's the premise behind the declaration that all in this covenant relation know God. It's not that they know him because they've gotten their doctrine right or because they've observed symbolic actions and rituals in churches or whatever it happens to be. They know him in the inner man, in a true and a living way, with a true and a living knowledge mediated through their union with God in the Messiah by the Spirit. In other words, the truth of God, Torah, is woven into the fabric of their being. We don't do Torah, we embody it. Jesus didn't do the law, he fulfilled it by being the embodiment of what it was all about. And so because of this is a people for God who know God, it also involves a people who are reconciled to God, also defined in terms of Messiah. God's people are those who know him in the inner person by virtue of sharing in the life 
of the one who is both the human image son and also the incarnate logos. And therefore, they are reconciled to God, not in a way that they're simply forgiven and God isn't angry with them anymore, but that they are taken up in God's own life and likeness. See, we don't think about these things. For us to be forgiven means that, okay, God's up there in heaven, I'm down here, he's not mad at me anymore, and hopefully he'll bless me. And I'll try to be obedient, and hopefully, you know, he'll notice that. But he's up there and I'm down here. No, this reconciliation is the union and communion of our beings, our persons, with God himself. It's an ontological reconciliation, not just an ethical reconciliation. We have become now in the light of this new creation. What this merciful to their iniquity, sins and, and, and unrighteousness, I will remember no more. In the larger prophetic context is this promise and hope now realized in the Messiah that the people of God who know him have become his dwelling place. It's a reconciliation of an intimate Union and communion. I and them, they and me, right? This is the goal of forgiveness and cleansing, is being taken up. And it's actually the way in which this cleansing takes place. God doesn't remotely put something into our account. Our righteousness is being taken up in the true truth of, our, of what it is to be a human being in the Messiah. We died, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. The goal of forgiveness is this I and you, you and me communion. Not just God not being angry with us anymore. This helps us then to see, and with this I'm done, how this Sinai covenant is obsolete. This is where, again, the firestorm starts hitting. Well, wait a minute, you're, you're antinomian. You're saying we're not under law. Doesn't the Bora law continue, even if the ceremonies don't? Or at least, you know, a facsimile of the Sinai laws to be resurrected in this thing called the new covenant for the Jews in the millennial kingdom. How can it be obsolete? Well, the way in which Jeremiah depicts this, particularly as the Hebrews writer situates this promise of Jeremiah, he situates its fulfillment and its substance in the resurrected, enthroned priest-king. We see how this is a better covenant enacted on better promises. When God would act in that day and, and establish this covenant, it would see Abraham's offspring become his people indeed, bonded to him not ethically, not religiously, not morally, but as taken up in his very life. The dwelling of God in the spirit. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do we believe we are individually, but more importantly together, the dwelling of God in the spirit, the true temple of the living God. Torah woven into the very fabric of our being, not because we have figured out how to do it, but because we embody it as sharing in the Messiah, who is the embodiment of all truth, all wisdom. And that union would see God's house filled with true image children. This is Isaiah 54 following after 53. Image children who share in his life and likeness, even as he has taken that which alienated and estranged them, which made them pseudo-human. He has taken that to himself and dealt with it and condemned it and put it to death. He condemns sin in the flesh that we would become the righteousness of God in him. So this new covenant then would herald the full and everlasting realization of God's eternal purpose for his creation. Yes, first pledged in Eden. Yes, worked out through his covenant structures in the salvation history. Abraham, David, Israel. And that's how we understand this idea of its obsolescence. 
Yes, the new covenant is inseparable from all of the preceding salvation history. It really is. It's what we saw in the Sunday school hour. The, the story of Jesus in the Gospels can't be understood except in the story of Israel. The story of the Old Testament scriptures. At the same time, even though there is that continuity of the salvation history, this new covenant is a new covenant. Not new in terms of degree or in terms of timing or in terms of administration, but of a new sort and having a new quality. Why? In what sense? What is that newness? It has its substance in the Messiah and the Messianic work. And that distinguishes it from everything that went before. It's a covenant unlike all that existed before it because it has its substance in the Messiah himself. And so it doesn't embellish or in any way perpetuate the covenant made with Israel at Sinai. Its unique messianic nature and scope That shows us how its newness is actually newness. And it shows us how that former covenant is then rendered obsolete. The Sinai covenant is not to be depreciated. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a failed thing. We've seen this before. The betterness of the new covenant is in the fact that that former covenant served a purpose in the salvation history. The best way to think of it is the way Paul did. It was a pedagogue. What does a pedagogue do? A child in his minority status, when he's not fully adult, a child who is a son and an heir is entrusted to a pedagogue who, who works with him and trains him and disciples him who prepares him in his formative years to come into his maturity, right? That's what a pedagogue does. But when that pedagogue has completed his work, when the time of preparation and formation is complete, then the pedagogue happily, and not with shame and not feeling that he failed, quite the opposite, with gladness and with a sense of accomplishment, he hands over the son who is now ready to take over his sonship and his inheritance. He hands him over to the father that commissioned the pedagogue in the first place. Paul says that's how Sinai functioned. It was a pedagogue. It assumed the custody of the appointed heirs, Abraham's offspring, and it administered their preparation until the time of maturity. And that time has arrived now with the Messiah, what Paul calls the fullness of the times. In him, he is the mature son and heir, and in him, all of the sons and heirs attain their full status. That's Romans 8, right? So the law of Moses prepared the children for their inheritance. It showed them what it meant to be sons and heirs of God. It prophesied of the Messiah because he would come as the one who is that. So here's the point. What is our obligation to the law? Christiformity. Christiformity. Does that look like immorality? No. Does it look like law-breaking? Oh, now we can steal, we can cheat, we can commit adultery, we can do whatever we want because we're not under the law. No. But a person can conform to a moral or ethical code entirely apart from Christiformity. You see, God's purpose, as I said, was not to form a people who would comply with regulations, but to have a family that shares in his own life and likeness. What does that look like? It looks like Jesus the Messiah. Conforming to the truth of Torah looks like being conformed to the image son who is the embodied substance of Torah. The logos made flesh. The one who is the full revealer of these things. So eight, the, he, the, the writer's statement in, in 8.13 isn't indicating a continuing relevance of the law. What is, what is old and not, is, is about to go away. He's not saying, okay, well, it continues for now. And it's also not saying, okay, well, this was written before 70 AD when the law went away. 
Again, if you look at 8.13, he says, what is old is, is about to pass away. He's not saying any of it continues. That's not his point. What he's saying is, when God made that utterance to Jeremiah, God was, by that promise of a new covenant, declaring the transience of the existing Israelite covenant. By saying days are coming when I will make a new covenant, God was declaring explicitly the obsolescence, the transience, the coming obsolescence of that covenant. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that that destiny, that pedagogical fulfillment has now come in the Messiah and his new covenant. So I leave you with this statement. You may have to think about it some, but the relation between law, the law of the Sinai covenant, Torah, as Israel's Torah, and the new covenant is not ethical, it's eschatological. Eschatological meaning that which has found its fulfillment. And didn't Jesus say that? You're going to hear me, and you're going to begin to say to yourselves, this guy's overthrowing Moses. This guy's abrogating the prophets. This guy's teaching us a different Torah. And he said, I didn't come to abrogate. I came to fulfill. I tell you, not a jot or tittle of God's Torah as he gave it, as he has revealed these things to you, not a jot or tittle of it will pass away till all is fulfilled. And now is that time. Now is that time. Hence my thesis, you cannot understand the new covenant except in relation to the work of Christ, and you cannot understand the work of Christ except in relation to the new covenant. He sits right at the center of that. And we want to have all these arguments about law and grace and covenant and, you know, all these, and, and completely set aside the, the accomplishment and the significance of Jesus' work, and we cannot do that. Father, I know there's a lot here, and I imagine there'll probably have to be a couple of listenings that will take place, but that's okay. Your intent is that we would grow up in all things into Christ, who is the head. Your goal is not that we would study to find all of the commandments that we need to keep, but that we would really understand and strive to grow up in all things into Christ, who is the head, that the one who is the definition of us, the one who is the substance of us, the one who is ultimately the destiny of everything in the creation, our labor, our ethic, our obligation of of obedience is to be conformed to him. If we do that, we'll be walking in the Spirit. If we do that, we'll be keeping in step with the Spirit. For the Spirit's work, the Spirit who is the Lord, is to transform us from glory to glory into the likeness of the one whose image we bear, even now in a mirror, as a mirror. But Father, may we be Christ-centered people in that way. Not just those who believed in a crucified, sinless Savior so we can go to heaven, but those who understand your purpose to sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in him and how we fit into that equation. That we live in the light of your ultimate purpose to be all in all. May we be truly people of Torah in that way. Help us, give us grace Give us perseverance in study, in thinking, in contemplation, prayer. Give us grace to show ourselves approved workmen, faithful servants, who in that day will hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Meet us in our need. Be merciful to us in our weakness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.